This is Westside Barbell with strength and conditioning legend, Louis Simmons. Westsidebarbell.com, the strongest website in the world. Welcome to the Westside Barbell podcast. Today we're joined with Flavio De Giorgio, John Quint, and Louis Simmons. Um, we're going to go over sprinting today in today's podcast. And Louis, you make us all read like a lot of books, but two such books that uh, we got a lot of information from is Underground Secrets to Faster Running by Barry Ross and The Rocket Sprint Start by Bud Winners and uh, Jimson Lee. Uh, Lou, we'll, we'll come on to the five phases of sprinting later, but what is a sprint? Well, Tom, that's a good question because most people absolutely warm up to prevent one from sprinting fast. They do too long of warm-ups. A sprint defined by Webster's Dictionary is sprinting is to run as fast as possible for a short distance. So um, basically, you know, when they warm, do long warm-ups or they actually go out and, and run 300s and 400s for a, for a sprint, I'm talking indoor or 100 meters, you're defeating the purpose because you're over-oxidizing the body. You need some aerobic compasses for anaerobic fitness, but only enough. After all, when you run a sprint, you, some people only take two breaths of air. You don't need oxygen only to recover. Okay. Um, is it possible for you to go over the five phases and then we can um, break up in each phase and then maybe an introduction into a first and then we go into each phase individually? Sure, Tom. Uh, I want to start out, you know, what does a sprinter have to have? An amazing amount of explosive power. And um, first of all, they must learn how to run correctly. I work with a lot of people, and unfortunately, they never had good coaches early in their career, and they have running faults. Um, so you have to make sure that you have proper biomechanics, not only to run fast, but to not to be injured. Uh, and then you must build explosive strength, and we'll get into this. But the definition of explosive strength um, is the ability to, to, uh, the ability to increase force rapidly. The faster, the steeper of the increase in strength in time, the greater explosive strength. So that's why you must do jumps, and we'll get into that. And um, and uh, if you like, we start into uh, phase one. I like to actually, we'll go into phase one, but it, it almost basically goes into phase two. But phase one of uh, running is reaction time. Um, you know, there's many ways to work on reaction time. It's basically uh, the time between stimulus and response. Once you understand, hear a stimulus or feel, you must respond to that stimulus. Um, so how does that train? Well, if, you, if, you're active, if you're trying to build reaction time, you must use reactive methods. Um, one such method is weight releasers. It was common for the Soviets to lower 80% combined with 20% on weight releasers. So they would lower 80% down and come up with 20 per, uh, 60% because 20% would be come off the bar. Um, the body wants to maintain the effects of the eccentric phase of heavy weights. It bleeds it still on there as it concentrically rises. Secondly, uh, Bonachak and uh, Verfashansi use a lot of um, heavy light sets. <clears throat> they would load a barbell to 90% for one to two reps for a couple sets, then lift 30% uh, for high-velocity training. It, that would be explosive strength, strength measuring velocities. Uh, load the bar to 90% for one to two reps, and... Um, Lift 75% for speed strength. Uh, seven lifts at 90% would be optimal. Uh, and eight and 18 lifts uh, with the 75%. So that's how you break it down. Um, the body adapts to uh, extremely heavy weights. And, and thirdly, um, stays adapted to the heavy weights. 
And thirty, static dynamic. Uh, here they would both both famous uh, coaches would pull on a static bar, and then leave it and run it and do a weight of thirty percent again, thirty four explosive, and seventy five seventy percent for speed strength. Um, so later on, Westside Barbell decided they actually have not invented five pieces, a static dynamic developer, uh, where you actually pull on a bar and it's electronically released, and you immediately uh, push or pull the weight that's loaded on the barbell, any desired weight for any desired spatial strength. Now, the machines we'll have, Tom, is a, is a bell squat machine, a plyometric swing, a Jones machine, a football block machine, and a throwing machine. These have been tested and are phenomenal. Um, when we talk about reaction uh, time, um, there are, um, you, you react to time by stimulus. So one of the methods is to basically just uh, stimulate the central nervous system for starting by having a companion start at the same time. You must react to that companion or a gun or a signal or a light. But it's been discovered that in boxing or fencing, that one will uh, respond quicker to parry a, a fence or to block a punch than they do by lights. And is, that, is that due to stretch reflex or CNS activation? It could be just familiarity with, with the sport itself. So it would be best if, if I've always felt that if I had one person lagging out of the blocks for reaction time, I would put a faster person beside them. They'd have to compete. And surely the, the one with the lesser reaction time would pick up better reaction time to catch up. This is one of the main factors in drag racing, reaction time with the lights, same thing. And uh, when you're developing reaction time, are you trying to uh, make advantage of the autonomous phase of the muscles? So you, want your, you don't want to think, you just want to act. So it comes up to that. Is that a huge part of reaction training? It's a lot of reaction time. Again, you, you want to anticipate. A lot of times you anticipate the signal. And when you learn to anticipate the signal, uh, that's when you're very fast. Years ago, um, you know, uh, Ben Johnson was so fast out of the blocks that he kept, you know, filing, and they found out he really wasn't. He was that efficient out of the blocks. He used a slightly different manner where his feet were fairly close together, and he left everyone out of the blocks. And that's what I want to talk about today, partly what he did. Because he worked on uh, sprinting is acceleration, um, at least 65%, according to the experts. And so I want to talk about a lot of the you know, acceleration training. Um, Flavio, you got a question on reaction? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, I have a question on reaction time. You talk about uh, different reactive methods, Louis. Um, weight releasers, heavy light sets, static dynamic. Uh, do you think uh, um, there is, uh, which is the most effective method between these three? in your opinion, between weight releasers, heavy light sets, static dynamic? I believe in the end they would all be equal because you must use the conjugate system. You must switch them one to another. Once you adapt to the stimulus, you become no better. So you would have to run, use one, and before you would fully adapt to, say, the heavy light system, you would need to move to the static dynamic. Uh, or before you adapt to that system, you had to move to the weight releaser system. Um, our, the system we're going to have is going to be far superior to all those. Um, I've watched the Soviets a lot of tapes. They had to have javelin throwers that uh, would work like that in plyo swings. And now we actually have one, and it's, uh, it's patented here in the United States and of uh, Europe. Okay, thanks. Just nothing, everything works, but nothing works forever. You must constantly change the stimulus. Uh, phase two is block clearance. <clears throat> What's this going to require? Great strength. You must have tremendous power to launch out of 
the launching pad for uh, anything, a rocket ship or a sprinter. And so one way to do it is depth jumps. All right? I'm not great on depth jumps, and uh, but if you do the depth jumps because they're commonly used, if you want your building concentric strength, how do you do that? Uh, you do that by jumping off a low box, 24 to 32 for most high-skilled, and then jump onto a high box. Uh, the automation phase must be very quick. Upon landing, you must immediately jump up, hopefully with under two-tenths of a second or less. Um, here, we, Verfashansky uh, uh, basically would use the optimal 40 jumps, 40 depth jumps, twice a week. I do similar things, but um, uh, one problem with depth jumps if I take a young sprinter, a 150-pound female, and I have her jump off a 30-inch box, her weight is constant. The speed of gravity, 9.8 meters per second, acceleration of gravity near Earth is constant. So when she would land on the ground, the force would be constant. There's no way to ever increase that force after a while um, because the only way you would have to shoot her down because it's great. it was better to increase velocity than mass. But it's impossible when you're falling through through space, and this this brings up a point about uh, falling through space. So, if I prefer to jump up, it's called uh, momentum um, um, impulse, and it's a lot better to jump up. If I had this female and she when she landed on the ground, she produced 250 pounds of force when she landed. It's very hard on the soft tissue of the ankle, knees, and hips. So, and after all, they run all the time. It's hard on the lower extremities, constantly overworking them. That's why you have so many injuries in track. It's much better to jump up. Now, think about this, folks. Instead of picking up acceleration through gravity, um, I jump from the bottom with a greater force than was applied for the landing previously for a 150-pound female, let's say, and jump up onto a box. So really, I'm jumping upward, even though it looks like deceleration, which it is, they land softly on the box. But they're putting a greater force to get off the ground to accomplish the feat of jumping on the box. When you jump up on the box, do you have them sit, stand, or walk up? Or is there any difference between what method you do? We use uh, many methods, Tom. Uh, you know, a lot we set on a low box, sit, rock back, swing our arms back, pick our feet up, slam it down, jump onto the box. That's one way. I have a lot of people, and I tell them how high we jump. Well, did they do it with a step up? Yes. Why? Because I'm trying to set the stretch reflex. Everything has a stretch reflex. It works better that way. The short stretch cycle. So we constantly do all types of jumps. We jump out of foam. Um, and when we jump out of foam, it's much like sand because it dampens the ligaments and tendons, makes the muscles work harder. And um, so we're, if you want stronger muscles, uh, jump off soft surfaces. You want quicker, more explosive mu uh, ligaments and tendons to absorb the punishing of running, jump off hard surfaces. And, you know, um, jumping on boxes is simple. It, it's work. If you look at work, well, work is defined as uh, the product of net force and displacement through which that force is exerted. Now, if you go on through physics and you look at what is power, and power meaning, in my mind, strength and power of a sprinter. Power is defined as work done divided by the time used to do the work. Um, you know, it's basically W equals FD for work and P equals WT for um, power. Um, the more powerful the athlete is, the faster the work can be done. This could be a, a 55, a 60 meter, a 100 meter, a 200 meter, or anything else. Uh, how does this work? Force equals mass times acceleration. Uh, this comes into play of deformation. Um, every time Newton's third ball uh, that every force exerted, there's an equal and opposite force. So the harder you put your foot down, the greater you're going to rebound back up. 
And for sprinters, this is very, very important. The greater ground force it should have proper biomechanics, the shorter ground contact. Um, it b talks about Barry Ross, and Barry Ross talks about a, uh, in a 5K race, they did experiments, and the stronger they, weight-trained athletes became stronger than the ones that continued to run the 5K. And the result was, if you could take one hundredth of a second off each ground contact, you'll take um, 25 seconds off a race because it takes 2,500 steps to complete a 5K race on the average. So a lot of people think this only works for sprinting, but it works for any distance. Strength is the key element to all things. It's one thing to be strong. It's another to display it. Uh, the strongest people are not always the fastest. And I watch, I watch um, um, your research on shot putters. They measured a thrower's discus shot and hammer versus their max strength. There was no correlation. Of course not. It's not a max strength sport. It's an explosive and speed strength sport. So I would measure, if I had five shot putters, I would measure the fastest one with 75 to 85% weights. The fastest one would be the best thrower, providing all the techniques were the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Louis, um, what other methods do you utilize uh, in your training uh, in order to improve power output or explosive strength? rather than jumping all right we do a lot of weight training um <clears throat> uh you know basically the dynamic method where you sub maximum weights of maximal force uh this is important for if you want to build explosive strength uh, then the barbell the barbell would be loaded to th in the three week wave i like to use 30 35 and 40 i like to constantly change the barbell weight to accommodate resistance we normally use 25 percent band tension a very fast eccentric and then, of course, a very explosive concentric motion. Uh, for explosive strength, I've determined that you could do 36 lifts. Anyone could do 36 and have no problem doing this. Um, for speed strength, you would do the same thing. We do speed strength training in a three-week wave. Those weights are 60, 65, I'm sorry, 50, 55, and 60 in a three-week wave with 25% band tension. Now, if you equate this, it adds up at the top value of 75, 80, and 85. If you look at the greatest Chinese weightlifters right now, their average squat weight is 80%. If you look at the uh, study and the magazine, the training of the weightlifter of 780 highly skilled weightlifters from Europe, their average weights, 50% uh, of the training between 75 and 85%. That's why I follow these. I'm big on research. I want to see what worked for thousands. I don't want to see what works for one. Um, if it's okay with you, Lou, I'd like to bring in John for a quick second and refer back to depth jumps and the effect depth jumps will have in a little more detail on the body and the joints. And depth jumps is a huge part of track and field training, but the constant volume and volume-related injuries on the shins combined with such jumps as depth jumps is going to severely, I'd imagine, uh, injure athletes or have them have increased susceptibility to injuries. Yeah, without a doubt, most of the injuries that you're going to see are repetitive strain injuries. So it's the repetitive usage with not enough, uh, the, with not giving enough time or to actually restore those tissues back. Uh, I think the, the benefit of depth jumps is uh, muscles, how they function, is if you're going to run, you're always, you're always loading before you're exploding. And so I think the way that Louis describes doing the depth jumps are an optimal way because you're still loading it but you're not loading it in, you're not overloading it. So then you can actually do those, uh, you can do more repetitions 
and more volume, but you're doing significantly less damage on the actual tissues, right? Like so it's a higher training I'm frequency, but you're still getting that optimal stretch reflex where, you know, he says you sit down you, and then you bring your feet up and then come back down. You're still teaching your body that says, hey, when we demand you to maximally go all out, we're going to first load you and give you that benefit. We're not just going to demand it right off the bat like it would be, you know, an everyday human function when you're when you're running. Yes, and, and John, you know, when we do the uh, when we do depth jumps, uh, we do depth jumps, but we always jump off a low box down onto a, a land and then a higher box because that method of jumping builds concentric strength. If you want to build eccentric strength, you would jump off a high box, land, and then jump onto a, a second box. Um, people, under, you know, everybody thinks atomization phase. They always think about plyometric action, which is under two tenths of a second. Actually. See, if you do box jumps and the higher the box, when you get above a meter, you get 42 inches, 45, 48 inches. When you land, you have a longer automization phase. It builds absolute strength. Um, when you, If you want to build explosive strength, your boxes are going to maybe go up to 30, 32. Because you're, you're, when you touch, you're off the ground quicker and that faster automization phase for explosive strength. Uh, on the automization phase, uh, a lot of people seem to think it's a, it's a stuck figure, but research here that you guys did you held it for five or eight seconds well a lot of people think it will you're right tom your story remember that's that's but we're talking about um explosive strength and uh, in iso in um uh, plyometric actions it's under two tenths mm -hmm. but in power metrics we'll say because i sat down again like you said i sat down with 485 pounds with 375 pound of band tension for eight seconds and, and got up at 0.6 meters per second that's uh, just almost what I normally do my speed training with. Dave Tate was very explosive, much more than I. Uh, he would just got out of college playing college football. And uh, Dave was, uh, I was 235 and Dave was 308. Uh, but Dave could stay down for five with the same speed. The reason he could not stay because his muscle tension would dissipate quicker because he actually had more explosive strength than I did. I had my, my general strength was, was as same, same as his, but he was more explosive so it would run out quicker. That's why you have to pick uh, if you're going to be a sprinter or a marathoner. You know, if you watch children on the playground and they run, um, you go out and the kid's very quick, he's very uh, very quick, but he wears out fast, put him in the sprint events when he grows up. If he runs forever, but he doesn't have any uh, you know, tremendous ac acceleration speed, he'll probably be a middle distance, if not a long distance runner. So those are a few things you know to choose when you're looking for athletes. And um, also, back to the automization phase, everyone thinks about plyometric. All, uh, when you lower a barbell and reverse it, the heavier the weight, the slower, you're in static position for longer till you overcome it concentrically. Um, automization can, or slow automization, that's what happens, you lift heavy weights. You know, you don't blast it back up. That's a misconception of a lot of people. Okay, um, well, can we go into a few jumps? Um, you know, these jumps, actually, I thought, until I talked to Dr. Romanoff of, of Pose Method, good friend of mine, I always thought these jumps came from weightlifters. That's all I'd ever seen them, but it actually came from dance. And, of course, the weightlifters took it. They're just like me. They're going to take the best, and you're going to use it. They're not stupid, and, and I hope I'm not real stupid. But we do a lot of kneeling jumps. This builds tremendous explosive power. Um, we had a top weightlifter here because he did the same thing repeatedly, could not jump off his knees onto his feet. A 490 clean and jerk, you could not do that. 
I was, I was dumbfounded. Um, but we do kneeling jumps. Basically, we start by sitting on the ground and pressing overhead with your legs straight out in front of you in a seated position. This builds all the muscles that's going to be required to jump. Secondly, um, we start uh, by on our knees and jump onto our feet with a bar on our back. Once we accomplish a particular amount of weight, we move on the bar across the thighs in the clean and jerk or snatch. And, uh, and for athletic purses, uh, purposes, um, a lot of people do split snatch or split clean when they jump up, left leg back down and so forth. We had one fellow uh, at one of the uh, conjugate uh, gyms in Cincinnati jump off his feet on, jump off his knees onto his feet with 310 pounds on his back. That is explosive power. All right. We also had the intern who jumped from his knees onto a 32-inch box. Right. Yeah. From his knees onto a 32-inch box. A lot of people don't believe this, but that's you know. And we have very, and this was an intern. Um, other boxes, and I always recommend 40 jumps twice a week. Why? Because Verfraschowski found that to be optimal for the depth jumps, and these jumps are hard. Our jumps are, uh, three out of four workouts are with resistance. Um, set, again, seat, setting on a box and jumping up and jumping out of foam. Uh, this is a single-leg approach to jump. We do single-leg jumps as well. But <clears throat> we will run through a cycle of ankle weights and then weight vests. And then kettlebells of all different types. And we record all these. You must constantly record all these records. Uh, one, this this is, sets an athlete up in a good mental state. He goes in and he, he jumps on a 42 with 10-pound ankle weights. It's a record. He's happy. Next week, he puts a 30-pound weight vest, manages to jump on a, uh, a 36. It's a record. He's happy. And then he uses 70-pound kettlebells and jumps on a 24. He's happy. So set up a winning a combination for athletes, and they'll win in their events. They're used to exceeding. We use all combinations. Um, a couple amazing things, fairly amazing. I had a fellow here weighed 460 pounds. We put a 120-pound weight vest on, and he jumped on a 20-inch box. Now, most people weigh 460 pounds, can't jump over a flat piece of paper. And, uh, and then John Stafford had an 832 deadlift. He was six foot tall and not exceptionally long arms. John would jump on a 36 and 70 pound dumbbells for five sets of five, and he could jump up and touch 11 six. That's a foot and a half above a bank board, so uh, uh, the rim. So that's that's basically uh, some of the effects of what we've got. Our uh, an 18 year old female here jumped on a 55 box, and an intern jumped on 63 and a half. Uh, for jumping volume for different um, athletes. So if if you have an athlete who maybe can't, who's uh, a novice to a high level, is there a different amount of volume that you'd uh, recommend for each? No, I just make the box optimal. You know, if they had a hard time jumping on a um, well, 40 inch box, I mean, you know, everyone should be able to use percentages. So I'd give them a 70% 28 inch box. Make it optimal, make it easy. Always train optimally. I used to do seminars with Dr. Mel Seth for super training and um, Mel was talking one day and I mean, Mel spent a lot of time here, one of the smartest gentlemen I've ever known. And, but one of the simplest things he ever told me was the most profound. He said, you never treat, tell the, told the audience but when it was his turn to speak, and I was sitting behind him, you never train minimally. And I said, no, nope, that's for pussies. He said, you never train maximally. And I'm going, wait a minute, that's what I've done all my entire life. He goes, always train optimally. If you look at any sport, Tom, like boxing, heavyweights going to throw an average. The average heavyweight fire would throw around 45 punches around. Lightweights would throw 60, 65. Everything has an optimal. A football game, they're going to pass so many plays. You know, in the beginning of the game, and runs in me place. Everything is optimal. So train that way, and you'll you eliminate injuries, and um, you'll make have greater success. You know, it's not about the warm-up. 
and, and I want to get into a periodization of running too, but it, it's it's about the event. So you got to save yourself for the event. Flavio, you got a question? I, I have a question on jumping, Louis. You know, we're talking about volume and training. Um, in order to maintain for an athlete explosive strength throughout the year, um, would you would you use jumps every now and then, or would you work your jumps, you know, throughout the year? No, I work them throughout the year. You have to do them throughout the year. That's the problem with most track training and actually weightlifting too. Weightlifters will use Western periodization. It's outdated by 50 years. And, and track people use a system, another method of um, uh, periodization. And basically it starts with an accumulation phase where they do all types of exercises that actually a lot of them don't pertain much to the sport itself, mostly general. Uh, and then they go, they make an intensification. They eliminate some and they go more towards an event. A high jumper, a sprinter, an 800 meter, a 100 meter sprinter, whatever. Then the third phase is transformation. Now they've eliminated a lot of things that actually got them to this point. Um, and now they're a sprinter or a high jumper or a hurdler. Um, and then at the end, then they go into the contest or the competitive cycle. And the competitive cycle is very, very short maybe five, six weeks, yeah. Who in the hell is lucky enough to hit that exactly? Um, I asked the question, my gym breaks records, as you well know, Tom, 90, at a 90% rate on max effort exercises every week. So why wouldn't I have a sprinter in the very beginning of the year and go out and break a record? Uh, absolutely, I did. I had one come here and couldn't break records till the end of the year. In the first track meet, she broke uh, the 60 meter, the hurdles, and shot put by seven foot, as you well know. Didn't you have a, uh, a female Jamaican sprinter come here and call out your weightlifters? Yes, yeah, yeah, this female, I believe if I recall, she ran 11-1 and had a, a Jamaican guy with her, but he said he didn't want to run. He ran like 11-2. And so she was mouth, pretty mouthy girl, you know. And uh, I had a mouthy guy, and this guy was no good. We kicked him out of the gym. He wasn't strong. He was only squat 740, 220. But so he challenges to a race. So they, they lined up, uh, if I recall, it was 40, 40 yards or so. He beat her. So she wanted to go 60. He beat her in a 60. How did he do it? Pure strength. That's, how, that's what strength matters. Strength matters that much. So... That's how he did it. it. That was an interesting experiment. On the, just out of the blue, it happened because they both had big mouths, which is where you're supposed to be. Run your mouth and back it up. Um, more questions about any explosive training? That's, that, that's exactly why we use the static dynamic developer. Uh, this machine, when it comes out, I'm not trying to advertise my own stuff, but this will revolutionize strength training in the world. Um, so, okay, Can you go over, I know we've mentioned but what the concept of it is, the, of static overcome by dynamic, a little more in detail. Like w what's happening with the body when you hold statically and then when you release the brake. Yes, by doing this, by pulling on a static bar or apparatus like we have, you actually build up 100% muscle tension. And then we release the apparatus and you move 30% or whatever you desired for whatever spatial strength. That's the only way it can be. You cannot build up maximum muscle tension and uh, like when you lift 90%, if you think about it, you may only use 90% to lift the barbell. That's the problem with doing three reps. If a person, I would urge a person bench 505 for one, then 500 for three, if 505 is a record. Because everybody conserves themselves to do reps. So it's much better, and, and uh, just remember folks, maximal strength is measured isometrically. Not by barbells that move. It's measured isometrically. 
So that's how it's tested anyhow. So you build a maximum, 100% maximum force and strength, and then it's released, and you move a light object. It's sensational. Tom, I know you work with a baseball player from the Indians organization, and last year at this time, uh, you might tell what you've done with this gun um, by year, using this method of yeah. static dynamic. Last year at this time, in his off season, he would do a lot of um, uh, specific or specific drills, and he'd throw about a 79 a 77 to 79 mile an hour uh, pitch. Um, by using this, and only in six weeks, uh, he's now thrown an 87. And he is, uh, what, three or four weeks away from the beginning of camp. And this solely, what I think, is from static dynamic methods and using the belt squad at the same time, which we have one there. But um, his recruiting, uh, recruitment, and firing patterns are so powerful that he cannot feel the ball in his hand. And that's from using that method of training. Because, um, you know, like if you take electric stim, electric stim could cause a greater muscular contraction than you can on your own. So that's it's basically the same process in a way, you know. And plus, when you don't have to think about it, you know your arm's going to throw or it's going to do whatever maximally. And that's the part. When you don't got to think about what you're doing, it just does it. That's well, the best way to be. That's interesting, too, because um, you guys touched earlier on, you know, uh, long warm-ups. And when you're talking about warming up, you're talking about taking the tension out of those tissues and then applying maximal force into those tissues, which is going to cause more repetitive strain. It's going to create more demands onto the tissue, which is not only going to put you at a higher risk for injury, but it's also going to not enable you to really, like, what did you say? It's one thing to be strong. It's one thing to be able to showcase it. Exactly. Right? So, I mean, you got to figure if you're doing, you know, all this stuff that, let's say, you know, hamstring stretches and all this others, you want an optimal level, all the muscles have an optimal level of tension and you want that optimal level of tension going into a race. You don't want to be so loose that, I mean, how would it work if you were in the static dynamic and you couldn't create any tension? You wouldn't be able to overcome it, yeah. right? So it's kind of the same thing, except with you, you're only having to overcome gravity and then also uh, your own body weight. But I think that's interesting that, you know, you guys are actually trying to create increased tension in the tissues so that they have, uh, they're able to be loaded much more. And if they're able to be loaded significantly more than they can explode, and you guys are talking about explosive strength, which is exactly kind of what you see, I guess, not so much maybe the strength coaches, but the track coaches trying to get the, the, the athletes to be looser just because of maybe conventional wisdom or traditional thought. Yes, which is incorrect. It's just it's right. just over and over by coach after coach. But a lot of coaches are great with technique and biomechanics, but I think the physiology of the body they lack. They don't understand what actually really moves. Right. I mean, it's just like when we've seen guys here come in, you know, UFC guys, and, you know, the issue isn't that they're not mobile, it's that they're not stable. You know, you see, you know, high-level yoga people all the time. What do they have to do? they got to stop doing yoga and they got to start doing strength training because mm -hmm. they're so loose that, I mean – it, they can't function through everyday life. Why would you want your athlete? Why would you put your athlete in a position where they don't have optimal levels of, of tension in all their joints so that they can actually display the strength that they have? On the long end of that, that's what problems when you're a contortionist. Right. It's too too right. flexible, can't hold their own body weight up. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's really what you're making your athletes. I mean, so that's why it's, it's interesting. Like you just even said how Mel said, uh, you know, it's that optimal level. So you need an optimal level of tension, right? Um, another Go big thing, too is optimal energy expenditure. You've only got a certain amount in the tank that you can't go through. But if you're doing so much work, 
you're you're just defeating the purpose of what you want to do. You might right. have everyone differs, right. but be, for the CNS, you don't want to fatigue that CNS before you get into the event you want to do. Well, and, just like if, if you look at hip flexors, right? So you look at a guy that's really trying to pull a deadlift or trying to squat, right? They're trying to get out of hip flexion, right? But think about it. If, they, if, if their hip flexors had optimal tension in them and they weren't restricted... They wouldn't have to co- they wouldn't have to go through all that connective tissue to get there. They're just having to go against the weight. It's kind of where you're you're you want to put your athlete in a position where they have optimal levels of mobility so that they can actually display. They're they're not having to overcome their own uh, deficiencies as far as biomechanically or structurally. Yes, and another point is, I mean, the Bulgarians did a lot of testing on athletes, and they had very fast training sessions, forty five minutes, because at that point your serum testosterone would drop drastically. And so even for females, if you go out and warm up forever, it's going to be detrimental to sprinting. Um, I've watched, uh, you know, I sent a lot of people out of here. I've sent four or five. All my, I've never heard anyone here, but they all seem to leave and get injured. They go do these big warm-ups and get injured. I, I have sent girls out at 32 degrees in the freezing rain and blow up and down the, the, uh, the parking lot with power walking with sleds and running with sleds, pushing wheelbarrows. We just have Liberty University here ex-major college basketball player and a sprinter, 12 degrees. I take him outside and we make him power walk as hard as he can with 225 pounds. No injuries. But yet, you go to a university and they want to put these people through these drooling, long warm-ups and they get injured. Right. Well, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, it'd be like going out and taking it. You know, if you get an athlete that trains here and then gets optimal levels of strength and they're able to display it, but then let's say, so let's say that they're functioning like a race car, but then let's say, uh, we warm that race car up, but then instead we go ahead and we put regular tires on it. It's going to blow the tires up, which is the connective tissue, which is the repetitive strain injuries. So, I mean, they're able to display their strength, but the issue is now their connective tissue isn't going to be able to support it. So you're going to see all sorts of soft tissue injuries that are going to be nagging and are never going to go away because your connective tissue doesn't have optimal levels of tension in it. There's too much slack. Exactly, and for me, I prefer to do dynamic warm-ups. I prefer my athletes to maybe do just 25 jumps, warm-up, and then go perform their task. Well, I mean, it's kind of like, don't you think that the warm-up really isn't so much for the connective tissue as it's, it's more to kind of put your body on alert, right? Your kind of central nervous system saying like, hey, I'm going to demand that you're going to have to do something here, right? But it's kind of back to that optimal level where it's just like you're turning it on but just a little bit so that, you know, when it's needed, then you can go all out. I believe they're always trying to work for flexibility as well, but actually the best way to maintain, gain flexibility is through weight training. Right. Anyone doesn't believe me, take a five-inch camera bar and a big strong guy won't be able to touch his chest with 135. But as you add weight, it eventually touches his chest. Right. And uh, and you squat deep, if I put enough weight, you're going to go down break parallel eventually. You, weight Weights is the best way to gain flexibility. Right, but then on top of it too, you got to figure if you're doing all the depth jumps and all the stuff that you're you're talking about regularly doing. You know, I mean, it goes back to the analogy is you know when you drop down, that's like the basketball hitting the ground. The basketball is going to deform and then it's going to reform, right, with that same opposing force. So you got to figure. I mean, I, I don't know much about spreading. How many steps are in a in a basic hundred yard? I mean, because if you're doing forty box jumps, you're training at an optimal level, hmm. right? Why would you need to go above and beyond? how much you're actually doing um actually top spinners average 43 to 45 steps per race and 100 meters bolt actually accomplishes it in 41 but here's the point folks when uh, when bolt runs he produces 1,000 pounds of force on each step so if you calculate this that's 41,000 pounds of work and he does it in less than 10 seconds now a person in my gym who actually wears some competitive gear um 
that can squat 1,000 pounds. I've had 24 of these. It, they would do 12,000 pounds of work, and it takes you 20 minutes. So which one is more detrimental to your health? Sprinting. Right. So how can you combat that? Becoming stronger. The strong. You know, there's something. There's a, There's two things in every race you you must you must beat. One is gravity. That's why you must keep your body weight to a minimal. That's what um, uh, mass specific force is that Barry Ross talks about. Keep the body weight low. The strength has to raise. And if a person get, gains weight, um, as he's getting, if they, I, I had a young lady years ago. And she came in at 117 and ended up 150. But as she gained weight, uh, she could jump on higher boxes. That proved to me she was great, gaining greater force. So you'll want to always look at things like that. That happened a lot of the NFL players you got here, too. They put on weight oh, yeah. the 40 times. So just yeah, the first 40 time, and if you want to talk about just a 40 in the NFL combine, the first felt I worked with him 21 days. He weighed 295 pounds. He was six foot five, ran a five four, and they said if you can make him knock a tenth off, he'll play because he's a fo- he's a real football player. Now, he signed with St. Louis, but in 21 days he weighed 308, and he ran a five one forty, because I raised the strength over the point of gaining the body weight. I mean, I want I want big men fast. I don't want little men fast. Oh, little men's gonna be fast, but make the big ones fast, and you're gonna win ball games based on the line. You know what a big thing with what everyone's saying here, I think that a lot of coaches screw up on is task selection. They don't have a task. They want to do everything in one go, but you have to have a goal. If we have a max effort day, the max effort is the main movement, then the accessories follow. you you got to have a specific task. You can't cover everything in one hour and then try to go do the task. It's just not going to work. You need general fitness. Absolutely right, Tom. You need general fitness to be a sprinter. But what good does it do to run 300 when you only have to run 100 meters? It does absolutely no good. You're defeating the purpose. Um, remember what uh, Webster said? The sprint is to run as fast as possible for a short distance. That's exactly what it is. So uh, in my mind, I would train all sprinters. I would record. They would be all-out sprinting for 30, 40, 50, 60 meters, maybe to the distance in one workout. I'd shut them off. The rest of the time, I'd make them stronger. i just constantly make them stronger and stronger and test all these distances. Now, um, you know, in the book, The Rocket Star, they talk about the average top sprinter will accelerate with 64% of the racer, you know. And then and then he has he has to maintain top speed and as for uh, 18% of the time and 12% is deceleration. So my goal here, if that is true, at the, at the 65-meter 65, 65 line, um, not just to, instead of maintaining... That for 18 more meters, I want to maintain it for 20, 22, 24, and eliminate the deceleration. Everyone watches track and they think it just like a horse race at the end, the, the, the horse or the man is going faster. Everyone else is slowing down at a faster rate than he is. The, the guy is not going faster at the end of win. Everyone else is slowing down. It may look like that. And uh, but that's exactly what happens. So if you're, I, I, in my opinion, on acceleration uh, as a phase, uh, you know, speed of efficient acceleration, you have to train that 65% of the time. So how do you do it? Maximal strength. I believe people should be more in the weight room a lot more and only on the track a small amount. Because, Tommy, when we go on to train a powerlifter, a good one, we work on their technique for five minutes and then strength for 45 minutes. You either know how to run or you don't. You, and this needs to be done at 10, 11 years old, for starters. Uh, you need top coaches in America or in the world that train the youngest athletes. You have to start out correctly, or if you have bad technical problems, they're very, very hard to fix. So you have to start out correctly. And, and two things, they'll run faster and they won't get hurt. Most people get hurt by running incorrectly. Just by running incorrectly, they get hurt in all sports. 
uh, a lot of top fighters are reducing their volume of sparring because they know how to fight, but they do it in the weight room or they, they train the weight room or they do pads because it reduces the injuries and the impact on the body, so they're fresher for a fight. And if you look at Bernard Hawkins, I mean, he fought the 50 years old, he fight got beat by the crusher in a you know, light heavyweight championship fight. But Bernard trains basically like we do, short interval training. He doesn't go run five miles because if a fight's only three minutes as it is, and actually it's very, you know, so methodical the way he fights. So he would do short sprints, uh, interval training. Whenever you work a dart, you never keep the rest intervals the same. You must always change the rest intervals. Don't do something for 15 seconds, rest for 10, 15, 10. Go for 15, rest for 10, 15, 8, 8 second rest, 15, 15 second rest. Change the intervals all the time. Don't let the body develop its own clock. What do you say to the coaches who run, they got a 100 meter sprint or 200, and they make them run the 300 or the 400 to build up uh, what they call endurance and to build up oxygen that, so you're saying there's absolutely no need to do that? Well, I think top sprinters take two breaths of air in 100 meters. You only need oxygen to recover. Um, I, I actually had Dr. Roman off here one time and he came to visit Tom. And I was going to show up for some uh, Pittsburgh Steelers and some guys. So uh, me and the fellow was going to squat back-to-back, 435 and 120-pound chain, I believe, back-to-back. So we start out, and, uh, and it helped because we would use each other for, you know, uh, uh, you know momentum or, uh, you know, to kick each other's ass. Well, four in is Joe McCoy, open world champion 19. He gets cramps. So I stayed in, and I told Chuck Vogel, tell me to go. He says, go, and I squat, go, I squat. I do 12 doubles. The last set was explosive. I can squat these weights like bouncing a basketball. I squatted the last double as fast as the first. I'm outside. I have no air in my body. I'm gasping for air for five minutes. And then I asked Chuck, I said, how fast did I go? He said, every 20 seconds. And and he tried to kill me, you know. So I asked Romanoff how I was able to do the last sets as powerful as the first. And he said, you only need oxygen to recover. That's why uh, too much anaerobic training Read a book for once. It will explain why it affects um, or, um, aerobic training affects anaerobic strength. It affects it drastically. That's why all these NFL ball players, the college, the high school, slow down so much because they overrun them. You know, if, if, if running is the key to football, why not uh, recruit marathon runners? <laughs> you know, it's it, it, they're doing it all wrong. They under, they must understand physiology. They must read a lot of books. So, Louis, uh, since 64% of a 100-meter race, it's uh, acceleration. Um, and we said that 300-meter um, training, you know, a distances of 300 meters is too much. It can impair, actually, the anaerobic system. Um, what distances would you, would you train? At what distance would you train, actually? I just mentioned 30, 40, 50s, and 60s. That's all I would do, acceleration. Maybe 70 for the top people. I think, I'm sure Bolt can run out 70 meters, and I know um, uh, Ben Johnson could go 70 meters. He could accelerate for 70, then maintain. So that's what I would do. I would work on what the sport is. You go drag racing, you don't have to warm your car by going a half a mile. You, you run eighths and quarter miles. It makes no sense. And so you want to work, you know, it's called exercise specificity. But not only the air, when you run these distances, what does it really teach you to do? Pace yourself. There is no pace in a sprint. There's no pace in a sprint. You must go all out for as long as possible, maintain top speed for as long as possible. So it's, a, it's very detrimental. And, um, you know, I've seen people run as many as 10 200s. Now, last time I went to a track meet, I, know, I think I saw one heat in the finals. When we lift big weights, we take three big weights. 
Uh, it's just like a contest. So max every day, we normally take roughly 90% as it works out. And then a record and maybe one more. Or if a guy could do 500, he'd open up a 455, about 90%. He'd do 45, 505 for record stop. Or he'd do 505 and 510 and stop. We only do three because that's what our game is. And sprinting is the very same thing. Why would you do all these, um, you know, grueling workouts, destroy every and, – and I heard a coach say, oh, there's so many repetitive injuries. You know, it's a repetitive work injury. Well, how about doing something about it? Like you were talking about, John, working on ligaments and tendons. Uh, we all know the muscles grow at a faster rate than ligaments and tendons. But I think we're in one of the few gyms ever, uh, and it comes out of a, a strongest gym in the world that does millions of repetitions, very lightweight for ligament and tendons. You know, if you look at um, old Chinese Kung Fu masters, they had ligament and tendon changing courses. They built ligaments and tendon strength. Not just muscle strength. Kinetic energy. That's where it's stored that, the most. Exactly. When I do uh, all these exercises, it makes the ligaments thicker, and I have greater stretch reflex through that. Right. Yeah, which is interesting too, because a lot of the a lot of the muscle strains, right, plantar fasciitis, uh, shin splints, stuff like that. That's connective tissue, right? Right. So that's. I mean, you can look at it from multiple perspectives, right? But plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, all these are connective tissues. Right, and so is it? Is what is it? Is the tissue weak? Is it overtrained? It's probably a mixture of both, yeah. right? But you, I, I think the the whole key is you know you really have to go against the traditional way of thinking, and can, you, do, you know you don't just do something because everyone's been doing it for this long, right? That's no reason to do it. You need to do it because it makes sense for whatever event that you're doing. Like if you're running a hundred, you want to run a three hundred. I mean, it, that just makes logical sense. So I think a lot of making it more simple and being able to apply it is asking yourself does this actually relate to this and if it does then do it if it doesn't cut it out i mean it's kind of by addition by subtraction right you're right john but no one ever does that right because, because they were taught they think there's only one way right and there's but there's more than one there's two ways there's your way and normally the right way right and when you find the right way you work on the right way to make it even better because if you're a coach you're obligated to your athletes you got athletes hurt. You know whose fault it is? It's your fault. Right. It is your fault, especially when you run them through months of conditioning, and then prior to contest um, training, they hurt themselves. This is this is ludicrous. Our people don't have any of these problems, and they're they're afraid I'm going to hurt someone. I've never hurt. I mean, you know, I even get scared sometimes, but we never hurt anybody ever. And a big part of that is correct exercise selection. These guys no. They'll do exercises that they'll, they'll max out on, but they'll use the least amount of weight. And by doing that, they're, they're not lifting heavy weights, but doing stuff that's going to uh, activate the CNS. So if, if you're good at a front squat, no point doing a front squat to get better. You'll just do a, a deeper box squat. But correct exercise selection and work on something that's going to develop you, not something you're good at. You can't use large barbell exercises for everything either. You just use them to, to make yourself a, a very fast with the dynamic method where you use submaximum weights and maximum acceleration or use very heavy weights where you produce the greatest for production of muscle fiber, muscle units and, and firing frequencies. You build muscles in the glute, hamstring, wherever you want to build it through spatial exercises. Um, I want to get into spatial exercises later. Uh, well, maybe I'll get into them now because uh, running posterior chain. It's all, Look at a sprinter. Tremendous uh, glutes, hamstrings, hips, calves, and not to mention, you know, if he's strong, your upper body must be strong. If you don't have a strong upper body, you cannot maintain proper lean when you run. You will get tired, you'll get fatigued. Even if you drop your head a little bit, it changes things drastically, right? right? 
So you can, you have to be strong from head to toe to be a sprinter. And if you look at top sprinters, they look strong from head to toe. Um, when I work on acceleration, I again I follow the scheme um, uh, that the, uh, the the Jamaicans use. For for females, normally the surface might change a bit, but for females they run with 10k or you know a 22 pounds or a 25 pound plate on light sled for acceleration, full out running, and a male 20k or 44 or a plate for four, or 45 pounds here. Um, that's basically what we do acceleration. So um, we, we build acceleration to making them stronger and by doing some sprinting with these amount of weights. I prefer, if possible, always running grass. You eliminate all these all these shin splints. Yeah. Get off, be smarter, be smarter than, you know, coach, when you think about exercise, I learned a long time ago, I want to get the most out of an exercise. I don't want it to get the most out of me. Right. It took me years to figure this out, but I eliminate things that kill me and I only do things that made me better. Yeah, just as an example, you remember those Vibram five finger shoes? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? The little sock things? Yes. Oh. Right. Well, they got sued, and the reason why they got sued and uh, they were successfully sued is because, you know, they made the argument that, you know, humans walk around barefoot for hundreds of years. That's true, but we weren't walking around on concrete. <laughs> right? So the surface, so that's how they were able to win the lawsuit is that they're right. We were walking around, but we weren't on concrete. So to your point, if, you're, if you want to do higher frequency, higher volume, take it off into into surfaces that that aren't going to be as hard onto your connective tissue right and also train the muscles individually it's right. not bodybuilding it's hyperpathy training right. i'm not trying if i want to if i had to gain a pound i want on the glutes and the hamstrings i don't want it on the biceps right well it's kind of like that's why they make race cars and it's rear wheel drive you're kind of doing the same thing with your body you want to go forward but we know in order to go forward we first got to push backwards right right the muscles that push backwards is the ones that you're talking about yeah you know i see a lot of coaches too have their athletes do front squats well front squats going to build some of the quadriceps well the quadriceps are breaking yeah they break uh, they're breaking. Um, I know you've seen studies, John, you brought them to my attention on walking. Every time you take a step, quadriceps break, the hamstrings propel. Right. I mean, something has to slow the femur down. If not, you tear, you're going to tear ligaments, right? right? So obviously it's going to be what's on the front side. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, you're exactly right. So the backside must be much stronger. I had a female athlete years ago, actually track, ran for Ohio State, then Athletes West, and a world record horn on squat. But they tested Ohio State in the exercise phys uh, laboratory. Her hamstrings were 60, the quadriceps 40, highest as, as far as I've ever heard. Now, I know some Jamaicans talk about, they, they claim they've got some people down there 70%. It could be genetics and ethnics. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, because uh, you ever wondered, a lot of great Bulgarian weightlifters came from the very same region. Nam Suleiman, a lot of the people uh, came from a very a small region. Jamaicans are the same way. Look at the other side of the continent. you got all this, all the marathoners. How they come out the same way? Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, like in Ohio, it's always been the strongest state in the world because in 1966, I was in my first meet. There was four people that meet became world champions first time in 1972. So there's a tradition and a culture. You know, culture's got a lot to do with uh, all sports and all, all uh, everything. Yeah. You know, sometimes we don't understand someone's cultures uh, because we never lived their cultures. So, you know, culture across the United States is very diverse. So it depends on where you live and what the cultures are. You know, you're going to be in Philadelphia, you're probably going to be a fighter. You know, if you live in Alabama, you're going to be a football player. It's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, Louis, um, talking about posterior chain, could you tell us uh, some of the methods that you utilize to develop the posterior chain with your athletes, please? Yes. Um, one in particular is a reverse hyper. Years ago, I remember uh, – um, 
a couple of weeks ago when Liberty University was here and Bill Gillespie was here, he was actually in New Orleans with me, and they tested my reverse hyper versus Romanian deadlift. And the guy ran around the entire place saying how my reverse hyper had twice the muscular impulse and uh, hamstrings and, and low back uh, than the Romanian deadlift. And, um, and uh, they, they never tested the glutes. It's a glute developer by far. Nothing can compare to it. But we also have a machine called inverse curl. It's basically a Russian leg curl. I have a special device on it. It's a patent uh, uh, machine, and it's uh, able to uh, make it possible to do a true Russian curl, and, and you can take weight off until you can actually do Russian curls. And now I've got I've got men and women holding weight to do Russian leg curls, not falling down, not pushing off the ground, doing it very nice and slow and controlled the way it should be. We do lots of glute ham raises. Calf ham glute came from... Uh, for uh, weightlifting and sprinting. Valerie Borzov was one of his big exercises. Valerie would ask, they always said, Valerie, what do you need? And he would say, harder workout, harder workout. And that's what I say. How can I make these things harder for these people? If you don't make things more harder and, and but effective, you will not succeed at gaining any progress. Um, so we also do uh, a lot of standing leg curl. When we got a standing leg curl machine, it seemed to take the gym to another level. And, and then on top of that, for the two supplemental exercises, one's fairly hard. We do band curls. We sit on a plow bench, hook a band up in front of us, and pull on our, on our feet and let the band pulse out as hard as possible, preload the ligament and tendon, and then and do around 200 a day, uh, sometimes some more. And then also we lay down with 10-pound ankle weights and do 200 leg curls a day. So we do all this stuff, not only for top strength, but to build the smallest muscles. If you don't build the small muscles, ligament and tendon, you, there's one's going to get hurt. Yes. So we make sure we do that. And then, of course, just through the weight training, we have proper weight training. People don't understand even how to squat. You know, they a squat is not a squat in my, you know, what their idea of a squat is not mine. And we have the greatest squatter, male and female, that ever lived on the planet. So, you know, uh, what, Tom, 81 or 83 people over 800 in contests? We know how to squat. So, and also the deadlift is, is a key. You know, you asked about posterior chain. Um, uh, I mean, Barry Ross used the deadlift quite extensively with, with Felix. And um, um, Timlin also uses the deadlift for sprinting. And they use it. It's called drop deadlift. They'll pull the bar up to up, up past the knee and drop it. So there's no eccentrics. Uh, why, why no eccentrics? No muscle building. They want to maintain body weight as low as possible. We do many forms. Of, we also do one in reverse. It's called a demo deadlift. I have my athletes take the bar, hold it with a shoulder width stance, arch back, shoulder, sh uh, feet shoulder width, literally drop the bar to right to the knee and reverse it. Pull it up, up, down, up, down for 20 reps. It's all hamstring and glute. Uh, you mentioned, you just mentioned uh, deadlifts. Uh, I see a lot of coaches uh, only using conventional deadlift, but coming here at Westside, I see many athletes using sumo deadlift. Uh, what in your opinion it's uh the difference you know what in your opinion uh, why sumo deadlift it's it's much more superior far more superior than conventional deadlift two reasons it's much safer you see hardly see anyone hurt your back doing sumo deadlift because the ma major contributors are the legs hips and hamstrings in the conventional deadlift many many times it's the lower back so i can't afford to have someone injure their lower back when they're a track star and they not be able to train. I've never had this happen, although a lot of my people like to do conventional deadlifts. Even if they're better, it really doesn't matter to me because I want to develop force. Force is developed greater by pushing outward. Uh, we do sumo wide stance. It hits the hips, hamstrings, glutes uh, much harder than a conventional deadlift. 
And again, we have many variations of it. We do a lot of speed. Everyone thinks deadlifts are dangerous. The, the cleans are the dangerous ones. Um, you know, and um, I mean, why did, why did um, Barry Rush use it? I mean, is there a coincidence that Barry uses it and I use it and a lot of people use it? No, it's the way to do it. And when you grip a bar, you use more muscles anyhow. If you, put it, if you squat a bar, you're going to gain weight. And you're, can't, you, you, the grip is not important. Deadlifting grip is very important. You said earlier one of the best ways to get, I guess, more mobility in your tissue is to weight train. Well, when you're doing a sumo stance squat, you're keeping a lot, you're opening up your hips significantly more. So you're going to get a lot more hip drive. Right. Right, which I think is really the goal. So you're kind of, by opening up your hips, they're going to be a lot more mobile. And then you're actually using your pelvis as the main driver and your back is just upright where you don't get that extension in your back. So it's a lot more true to running where... When you're running, you're upright and you're rotating, but you're not going up and down, right? It's this rotational thing, and so I, I think that helps out a lot more too. Yeah, when here we found years ago our sumo deadlifts—that's primarily what they did. We had to do a lot of back exercises because at some point they couldn't get any stronger than sumo. We had to make their back stronger because the back wasn't hardly contributing at all. Yeah. So just the opposite yeah. of a lot of conventional. And then the other thing too that I want to emphasize is the fact that in the inverse leg curl, uh, it's the only exercise where truly the hamstrings are loaded before they're exploded. So it's it's really the most realistic setting to put the hamstrings on to really be able to develop that type of strength that you need in sprinting, where everything else is the concentric first and then followed by the eccentric, right? So you can, so to me for a sprinter that would be the optimal setting to put them in is where they're having to load that hamstrings are being loaded first and then they're being exploded so you're talking about less repetitive strain from doing that exercise so you could do high reps there too you, you're not having just to do it for uh muscle building correct and also you know a glued ham people call it glued ham actually is a calf ham glute because initially to drive up you must push with your toes drive your knees and then hit your glutes that's exactly the cycle of running so that's why they were invented. The problem of the glued ham raise, um, um, I had uh, LaCharles Bentley here, and he told me he trains offensive linemen for the NFL. He has, what do you say, Tom, one in 100 that could do a glued ham. They correct. can't even, correct, without sliding their knees down. You cannot cheat on this inverse curl machine. You cannot cheat. That's why it's more effective. You do know what you both are saying is going against a lot of coaches do because the Olympic lifts is the ones that are going to build a explosive power. Nothing else. That's a firm belief. Yeah. Olympic lifts do not build explosive power. Olympic lifts is a speed string sport. Yeah. You know, uh, well, it's proven biomechanically. Olympic weightlifting only contributes to Olympic weightlifting. Yeah, I mean, this is it goes back to just because you've been, you know, coaches, and I use quotations, strength coaches have been doing it for years upon years doesn't mean it's right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think you have to really ask yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't see its place in any of the – I don't know. Maybe you see. I don't really conditioner. Okay. Uh, but one thing, a problem with Olympic weightlifting is actually too quick. It's too quick to produce great force. You know, great force is in slow velocity. Weightlifting has to be very fast. And you're limited, you know, I don't want to get an Olympic weightlifting, but you're only good as the one, com the weakest component. You know, the clean, the squat up, the jerk. You know, you have two poles, so whatever it is. But it's too technical. A sprint, a high-tech sprinter is very technical. Uh, any top athlete is very technical to achieve that ability. So you, how do you become a high-tech weightlifter and a high-tech athlete at the same time? It's impossible. Yeah, exactly. It's impossible. Yeah. It's sad, but 
90, 95% of each coach in the weight room, you're going to see kids do cleans. They don't know why they're doing them. They're told to do them. But they assume that that's going to be the exercise going to take them to the next level, regardless of the sport. It's the universe. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, you know, I talked. I used to talk to a a, a, a retired East German biomechanics expert in the shop put, and he told me about Luda Barnes, you know, and uh, our um, um, and um, um, all the, all their throwers. And I asked him about Olympic weightlifting. He said a lot a lot of them didn't do Olympic weight. They did high pulls. He said it's the traps to throw. You don't have to do Olympic weightlifting. You just had to build up the traps. You know, anytime you press, you use your traps. If you read the definition how Chinese believe pushing weights over your head, you do it by contracting the traps. It's the barbers over your head. And one of the primary things for shot putters, and we're not, we're not talking about this, is the press behind the, the jerk behind the head. The better they seem to be at that, the farther they the shot. Let's get back on track. Yeah, let's get back to the dragging. Now, remember, um, you know, for sprinting, we use these very light weights for sprinting. Why? Because any heavy weight for sprinting distorts running form. So what we do, we use power walking. And uh, basically, uh, we try to set it up. We, we set up the power walking. We did experiments. And actually, um, uh, the strength coach for um, uh, St. Bolt was here. And I told him about this, and he, he thought it was uh, amazing. Uh, we had some people. They, we basically set up a 60-meter length run. And, but they power walked and they did it with 45 pound plates and they covered it in 21 seconds and we added weight you know we went to 70 and then 90 and then we went to 135 and the two subjects that did this were female they weighed approximately 135 or 40. when we got the more weight we put on the sled up to 135 or approximate body weight they did it in 17. so i go two of them built, did the very same thing so i says well is this a fluke um and then we had a decathlete uh, ex national champion come here he came in, he weighed 215 pounds, so we started with 90 pounds, and he covered that in 17 seconds. As we raised the weight till eventually 225, he covered in 11. So then I had a girl, a uh, larger girl, 175 pounders, so going trying out for the Olympic bobsled team. She So she started with 60 pounds, and she covered in 24 seconds. She, you know, and um, then we added weight up to 100, uh, I think the same 100, 135 pounds, and she covered it in 17. This is a strong girl. This girl was very strong, very big, you know, bigger than my sprinter. Um, so what does this show? Um, remember when I talked about depth jumps? <clears throat> when someone of, a, of whatever weight you are, if you jump off a 36-inch box, you can only move at one speed, the speed of acceleration of gravity near Earth, which is basically 9.8 meters per second. So if you weigh so much when you land, you can only produce so much force. So if you go out and run every day, if you're a 200 pounder, a 300 pounder, or a 120 pounder, every step is going to be the same until fatigue sets in, right? So how could I gain greater force per step by using these weight sleds? The, the weight sled is attached to a belt around the waist, and we walk off the heels because I'm not concerned with running, I'm concerned with building the muscles that run. So it's called power walking. And I, I believe it's a lot like the rules of walking. Um, you have to uh, heel touch first. And uh, it's long stride. You Everything is against running. Overstride, heel touch, pull. It, build, it builds all the posterior chain to a great amount. Now, so that's acceleration. And remember I, I said, Flavio, that I would work. I would only concern. In drag racing, one of the most the fact, the more important thing in drag race is the 60-foot box. Not the 1,320-foot mark. The 60-foot. And then it's the eighth, and then course right on down the track. All right.
because that's that's what acceleration is. But I had fast cars. I had a car around 130, so 300 feet out, I'd, I'd drive 130 to the end of the race. That wasn't bad. Then I had a um, a car that ran 160, and it and a, a six 300 feet out, it would run um, 160 to the for 300 feet to the finish. That wasn't bad. But then I had a 1650 horsepower motor, and it would run 175 going through the end. It accelerated throughout the full range of the race. Is that not what we're talking about here? So how did I how did I um, uh, also build up top speed with my runners? But how do I maintain top speed? Remember, accelerate 65%, basically 64, or 70. Now you got 30 meters to go. Where do you lose races? In the end of the race. All races are won at the finish line. So how do we increase? How do we increase this this up uh, time um, running uh, the the remainder of the race? I set up uh, just I do this by time instead of distance. I do it by time. We had these athletes go 60 seconds. They basically covered a distance. Um, 80 yards. We'll say we'll say um, we'll say uh, 80 80 meters. No, it'd be more. No, we're looking for in 60 seconds to be 400 meters. So they probably went 300 meters in 60 seconds. All right. Again, by using this same amount of weight, body weight, the second time we went, uh, they covered every time they did in the 60 seconds. They covered a longer distance. We gained 10 feet, then another 10 feet, and we ended up, by the end, we actually gained 80 feet. We went 80 feet further than we started in 60 seconds. What did we do? Eliminated deceleration. It cannot be done by just pure running. Only biomechanics. You know, I could take the greatest cars. Well, I don't care if it's the fastest car in the world. Um, I could take a Lamborghini. I could take a Corvette. I could take a Cadillac. I could take a Benz. And you go out here and run them 100 times on the road, they'll all will only run so fast until you put more horsepower in. The speed barrier. The speed barrier. That's exactly what happens when you run too much. You need to spend the time in the weight room. Uh, like I said, once you learn biomechanics, is you've learned it. I mean, everyone needs to keep on top of it, but don't spend an hour warming up to totally destroy your athletes. Then work on technique forever. You know, and you know, it's one thing, everyone doesn't run the same. If you look at the two fastest humans up to, to 400 meters, um, ben Johnson, Michael Johnson, and then Bolt. They're the fat. Johnson ran straight up and down, short strides, not exactly what everybody wants. Uh, Bolt, very, very long, very long, very uncommon for sprinters. He's six foot five, right? You have two oddities, but why are they the fastest humans at the 100 and the, and, um, the 200, uh, the 300, and the 400? Why? What, what could possibly be the explanation? More powerful. Yeah. Tell me what. I mean, you can dream up all the stuff you want. There's one way, more powerful. So um, so what I'm getting at here, and I'm a firm believer in technique. I believe in absolute perfect technique. If you try to fight a good fighter and you're just an average guy, you're getting killed because of great technique. You, you witness this working on top fighters, John. Yeah. You know, you, you say, I would beat this guy's ass on the street if he didn't know how to fight, but they do know how to fight and they'll kill us all. Yeah, yeah right. It's because it's all technique. But, you know... You can work on technique, but don't change a sprinter's style. Yeah, and the interesting part about that, too, is going back to something that 
I guess that wouldn't be – you don't see a lot of track uh, coaches implementing that. So it's going to go against conventional wisdom. But when you look at the benefits of it, one, you're, you're doing the biomechanics like you're running, right? So it's independent. The lower extremities are having – the spine is getting coiled and loaded, right? So you're getting mobility into those tissues. You're building strength. You're accomplishing a lot of things at once. It, I, right? I, but I, it's all, it's all going to actually translate over, right? Yes. I, actually, I call it the Tai Chi of weight training. It's slow motion weight training. I watched Jet Li on a on a TV show one time, and, I, and everyone's seen Jet Li in the movies, the Kung Fu movie. They said, Jet, how did you get so fast? And Jet said, first you must become slow before you become fast. He means resistance training. Everyone, Tom, you always bring up the fact that you watch these old Kung Fu movies. They're doing plyometrics before anyone ever heard of plyometrics. They, they were walking with uh, you know buckets of water and all the crazy crap that we do. They were doing that 400 years ago. So don't think that we're doing something new or the Russians came up or anyone else. We did not. You know, but you know what? A guy one time said, they said, Louis Simmons, I'm credited by using um, comp, uh, methods of training the bands and the chains and, um, and so forth. And the guy said, well, you know what? Louis Simmons didn't invent bands and he didn't invent chains. And I said, you're absolutely right. But I didn't invent toilet paper, but I'm smart enough to use it. <laughs> so you always use what you have at, at, in front of you. Um, more you, you brought up a good point. Sorry to go on um, Bolt and on Johnson. Um, on the videos we saw, there's the people who are not on the in the trenches who train, but they're trying to change their style or change their mechanics. You can't. And we watched that video on Path who said that this guy has scoliosis. Well, he needs it. He, he's developed pathways to get around that. Uh, some people are pigeon-toed. Well, they develop pathways to get around leave him don't try to change something that's not broke yeah the, bo the body's always going to take the path of least resistance so a lot of times when you see someone strength training and a knee goes in right it's it's not due to i mean it is there is a mechanical dysfunction to it right but it's going in because of a weakness um, right and so it's kind of this the same thing it, it it's like what you guys have touched on earlier right is these guys are so strong and this is how their bodies are or dealing and optimizing that strength and it, it may not be the tr correct term but their bodies are, are they, they're highly trained and they know how to actually display their strength mm -hmm. right so that may not fit into whoever's definition of optimal biomechanics but you can't argue that it's not optimal biomechanics if they're the fastest men in the world um, right. here right. in my so, gym so technically on top of it too it goes back to what you're saying where strength is going to be able to overcome a lot of these quote unquote we're assuming they're deficiencies I'm not assuming there are deficiencies, but a lot the, 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 the bio, would, right are yeah. assuming that there are deficiencies. But Tom, uh, you know, uh, you know, I had a couple of listeners, male, female, who come here, and they didn't have the technique that we desired for people to have because they were just built. They weren't built to do what we do. One was named Ger uh, Geronimo, oh, yeah. and um, he wouldn't didn't squat as wide as us, and I mean, extremely strong. We so we it just gave up trying to make him squat wide. He ends up squatting a thousand. You know, 10 years ago when that was big and it deadlifted over 800. And then Gracie D out in California. I watched Gracie and she's got, it rounds over a little bit in a sumo deadlift. She's never going to be arched. She's never, she's going to use particular muscles. So I said, the only way you can become better is to become stronger. And uh, right now I'm working with a, a person that, uh, you know, they were never taught to run properly at an early age. And I believe how they're going to excel is through the weight room. A little bit of working on the technique of their style. But that style is never going to change. A big thing I've, in research and information for you, I'm going to blew me away with uh, Ben Johnson on how strong his bench press was. 
And I'm like, why does a sprinter need to bench press over 400 pounds? And then it comes back to the technique. If you're weak, your technique is going to falter somewhere. So if you've got to set up in the blocks or do whatever, strength is going to improve your technique. It's not going to take away from it at all. But that's a big problem people think. It's just technique, technique, technique. But well, you can't hold it if you're not strong enough. And, and think about in Ben Johnson's day, you know, I don't know a lot about track and field, but I imagine that he was, I mean, he was so much stronger. Yeah. You know what I mean? Back Huge. in the day, so it's almost like a trained athlete going against somewhat of an untrained athlete. So what? he would have a huge advantage. Compare him and Carl Lewis. They right. Difference. We we had heard that uh, Ben had box, parallel box squat of 620 for two reps at 172 pounds. Yeah. Very, very strong. They're all very strong, but that's extremely strong. Right. And, and you know, if you watch the documentary, 30, 30 by 30, talks about in the beginning, he could outrun everybody for 30, 30 meters, and then they'd pass him, and then 40, and they'd pass him, 50, 60. But then at 60 and 70, no one could pass him or became a world record. And his uh, coach, Charlie Francis, the very same outlook that you do in training. Yes. You know, I know, Tom, you look around at all the time studying things and, you know, for doing research for me and doing research for yourself. And you notice that the, the, the Jamaicans, if you look at their system from a, from a very open mind, it's exactly like ours. Mm-hmm. It's two different sports. The Chinese weightlifters are exactly like ours. The Soviets, of course, I took it from them. There's, there's a correct method to train. If you sit down and analyze what you're doing, take it from a common sense perspective, you will uh, succeed. Anything else we want to cover about the, the sprint? I hope I covered it all. But this, the, the power walking with the sled has done wonders. Not only uh, up for football. I quit training NFL ball players. They were all line, played online. I averaged three-tenths of two months. It's a joke. It's a joke. And because larger men need more absolute strength, They're, they can't do 50 chins like a little guy. So I knew that. But even smaller people. because. But you have to think, how can you produce greater force? And one way is you use power walking with sleds with the correct amount of weight. We went too much weight and they slowed down. Find, remember that word, optimal? Find the optimal weight for the op, for that person and I guarantee your sprint times will drop. And a good rule of thumb, power walking the sled, if someone's staggering like they're drunk, yeah. they got you got too much weight on there. Uh, yeah, Flavio, you know you were talking to me the other day. Though, and basically, I like to sled drive three times a week. On Monday, because it's our max effort day here, we do the heavy sled drive for absolute strength production. And then on Wednesday, we'd, we'd light the weight, uh, add, this, add the trips. You know, most of our trips for powerlifters and for football is 60, it's just 60 yards. And, but then I would build strength endurance. And then on Friday, I would drop the weight again, much like the rule of 60. Uh, for weightlifting, I kept dropping the weight down. On Friday, I used a lighter weight for a warm-up or restoration. I either warmed it up before I squatted, or I did it for restoration. And uh, that's exactly how I suggest everyone do it. You know, after track meet, go pull heavy sleds. Then Wednesday, pull a moderate sled. And uh, then Friday, uh, before you leave for an event, uh, pull a light sled. I- I've done things with people that say you should never do. I've used isometrics with young girls. I And what happens, uh, I would do it three days before a race, and lo and behold, every time I did it, they broke their sprint record. So don't, you want to have a vast library, but I told a friend of mine one time that, uh, you know, you need a big library, but how about putting some weights in it? Go put it to use. You know, read books, put it to use, practice. Take your, if you don't want to take your very best and experiment, take your very worst and experiment. You got nothing to lose with the bad kids. Take the worst kids you got. If they make progress, the, the top kids will make progress. Top kids might, might make as much because they might be closer to the top, but they will all make progress. I, years ago, by using this system, 
Um, a fellow at Ohio State, he was Big Ten indoor sprint champion. Um, and a high state coach, I heard him say to George, he wanted to run 100 meters in the Olympics, he had to run 1020. George ran a 1047. And I noticed he walked around his toes to point out, I knew right away he had weak hamstring. And, uh, and the coach said, I heard him say, that George will never run faster. So I got George, because he wasn't, of course, allowed to come to me, which is insane. But I got George. I said, George, if you come to me, I'll make you run faster. I had George nine weeks, and he ran 1017. 1017 in a race. Uh, it's really ironic. A high state track people never come to ask me how I did it. Well, and, and the same thing with 7010 shot putter for 35 years. It's a regular high state, but no one's ever come that. Finally, now we might be getting it, but no one ever come. How did you get him to throw 7010 in, in 1984 or 5? Well, and a lot of it is you're only as strong as your weakest link. So that, if you can isolate the weakest link and then train it, yes. I mean, obviously you're going to see results, right? It's just being able to find that weak link. When Mo Robinson came and trained here, she felt the training was actually thought was some of the best stuff she'd ever done. And I looked at Mo. This girl was nothing but muscle. I mean, she had a, a freaking six pack that I'd never seen. Tremendous glute development, hamstring development. Um, you know, she was a 400 meter girl. And when I, they would send me high school girls a lot. And when I bring them in, I, re, I would I put it, imagine Mo in my eyes, and then I would trade my girls into Mo. That's a model athlete. And you want to build, you, you, I saw what ran. So that's what, you, that's what I tried to build on my girls. And the same thing with powerlifters. We bring in, a guy comes in, he's five foot 11, 181. So I want to train here. I says, take a hike, dude. You know, you know, I got a 165, it's probably five foot two. That's what you got to be. And you got to be, you know, you, you need to be an optimal, uh, optimal and a model athlete. Um, or the odds are just against you. You know, people would call me and they talk about weight training and they were not very strong. They just weren't getting anywhere, no matter what. And I would simply tell them, I said, I love basketball, but I'm not in the NBA. You know, I'm five foot five. I had enough sense to get in the sport with weight classes where I could compete against people where I had, uh, you know, fair, fair ground. The biggest problem is people see that one athlete, that freak, yeah. and they're like, well, that could be me. That this one guy, like, freaking Herschel Walker is a good example of one. He eats one meal a day, and then like, well, I could do that. I, I'm going to be Herschel Walker. It and just do, doesn't and, doesn't work like and that. And I think doing many push-ups and sit-ups, right? Like uh, five thousand push-ups, yeah. five thousand sit-ups you know. in one sitting. But that's what people want to be. They always think that they're that special one. Yeah. And sadly, ninety-nine percent of them are not. Right. You got to have good genetics. You got to have a, come. You know, as you watch a lot of bowl games and all, you hear you watch this kid. Oh, his dad was in the NFL. You know, or basketball. His dad played in the NBA. You know. It's always, genetics goes a long way. You, you know, maybe your parents didn't have the ability to play sports because of economical reasons or whatever, but so you might be the guy. But you need expert training throughout. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that um, if a person, if, if I had a few girls here and they had top flight coaches at 10 years old, they would be five years ahead of what they're doing now. Yeah, but don't you think, too, that um – even though you know you're limited by your gen genetics, most people. But I think a lot of it too is uh, improper strength training is also going to hinder you even more. Which is, I, I think, the, the key take home, right? That everyone keeps saying is, you know, you need to do. You're an individual. You need to figure out your individual weaknesses, and then you need to cater your training to those based upon what event you're doing. Right, and if you do that, it, from what it sounds like, and from what we see working with different athletes here, if you're able to do that, you're already at an advantage, right? Because so many people are training non-optimally for what it is that they're doing, that if you can at least get yourself on some type of structured individual program 
that is is goal oriented into whatever event you're trying to do, then you're going to be at a huge advantage regardless of genetics. Too many coaches want people to do the, the you know the five classical lists for high repetitions. Um, well, if you squat for high repetitions, you might have um, 500 pound hamstrings, but if you got 400 pound lower back, you just hurt your lower back. That's why we never do classical exercise for high reps. We do special exercise to build warmth. It's almost, I don't want to call it bodybuilding because I know that's what you do. And, and But what we do, I would rather prefer to call it hyperpathy training where I try to direct it in the lower back, the calves. But, but it's functional. The, it's functional. It's functional. Yeah, Correct. Yeah, not just hyper. Yeah. Yeah. And then you don't have muscle bounces. Right. No, like you. If you need a big, you know, you see a lot of guys with big arms, they're not so big because they got no shoulders. They bring up their shoulders, you know, everything's got to be symmetrical. And the same thing in the world of sport, you, your strength has to be symmetrical or you don't have injuries. Louis, we've been talking about sprinting a whole lot, but what would happen if you got an endurance-based athlete in the gym, someone who would run middle to long distance races? Would you change up the training for them compared to a sprinter? Absolutely, Tom. I had a young lady here. She ran uh, triathletes, and um, every race she ran, she was ranked third nationally. She's 22 years old, about 120 pounds, college student at Ohio State at the time. Every race she ran, she ran faster times, and I asked her how she did it, and she said the sled training, and I uh, said, explain to me completely. So in the gym, what we did with her, I would put her on a non-motorized treadmill, she would walk on a non-motorized treadmill to her heart rate reached 155, and we immediately walk outside where there was a sled waiting. The sled had 45 pounds on it, 60 pounds or 75 pounds. We used this in a three-week wave. We would wave it up and then and reverse the wave and wave it back down. Um, and then she would go up to two and a half miles sometimes, but we'd never let her heart rate exceed 185. By doing this, um, she increased her times in all three events. And she said it was all about the sled dragon. The only thing we particularly ever did for the swimming was tricep work and lap pulls. That's all we did. And, um, and another exercise she did, she did high repetition squatting. She could only squat 100 pounds for a single, yet she could do 65 pounds for, um, 60, for 100 reps in a sets. And we normally do three sets like that. So she, she had great endurance, and that's how we did it. But a lot of people don't understand what endurance is. Uh, endurance is the ability to do continued work for a required time without a reduction of work. Uh, it's a combination of many things. Strength, strength endurance, um, aerobic fitness, and mental toughness. They had to be tough. And so you're, people ask me, how do I increase it? Well, endurance is increased only when the athlete is made significantly fatigued. So how do we do that? Well, in the gym, Tom, as you well know, we do a lot of belt squatting in there. If you want to build strength endurance for running, you basically, it's required to do a rep a second or possibly um, for, one min- for one minute, which would be basically a 400-meter run, or uh, a rep a second for two minutes, which would be an 800 run. Some people can actually go longer. But we found out that some of my girls have gone from a rep a second to 93 reps in a second. But they were explosive athletes training for um, one and 200 meters. But the athlete wants to pace herself without a reduction. Um, there's two ways to increase the work. Uh, one, you slowly add weight, or again, you pick up the pace, uh, 65, 70 reps per, per second. Um, this keeps uh, training at a minimum. Well, it's very important, you know, uh, Barry Ross talks about mass-specific force. That's what this does. Uh, but why we keep the body weight the same, they become stronger and then have greater, uh, develop greater force, which would mean minimum ground, co- ground contact in the end. Another exercise we do is high repetition deadlifts. 
We use a lightweight, but make the, a lot of people deadlift for 60 seconds at a time. I normally have the girls use straps. Um, they use sumo style, and they'll pull. And what we do, we try to do more and more reps in a 60-second time period. That's pretty much uh, covers a lot of what we do in the gym. Uh, how important is absolute strength for an endurance athlete? A lot of coaches I know feel that it's irrelevant. Well, what's your thoughts? Well, absolute strength controls everything. The stronger a person is, the easier light work is to do. I mean, if I, if in, in the NFL, they do combine bench pressing with 225 pounds. A guy that could bench um, 500 pounds is going to do, 225 is going to feel relatively light, but if a guy can only bench 300, it's going to feel relatively heavy. So the one that does 500 is going to undoubtedly do more repetition, have greater strength and endurance with maximum weights. And would you train the their absolute strength any different, just get them to max out like you would? Would you do any three rep or five rep maxes compared to um, other athletes? Actually, I do very little of that. I do make them do conventional barbell lifting, like the squatting and deadlifting, like I had said, and a lot of belt squats. But really, uh, I'd prefer to do it through um, changing int intensities. And how do you do that when a person weighs so much and they run such same distance over and over and over? It's, it's tough to do. It's like I mentioned before about jumping off a box. Um, if a person weighs 150 pounds and jumps off a 36-inch box at the same speed, which is 9.8 meters per second, that's the speed of acceleration near Earth, and you land, you're going to land with the same impact. Same thing when you run. If you, want, if you weigh so much, you run a, cer a certain pace, you're going to produce so much ground force. So uh, the one, how do we do it? We do it three different ways. And Tom, you know, because you also do this with your fighters. Um, one, one we do, we do sled pulling. And we will pull a sled with a 25-pound plate um, or, you know, um, uh, 45 pounds, 60 pounds, 75 pounds, could be 90 for the stronger male athletes. And they'll go distances of 400 meters, 800 meters, 1,200, or 16. We keep track of the time. They use the same technique while power walking. And um, so we keep track of the time with each weight, constantly breaking records with at these distances with different types of weight. So uh, instead of using one body weight, you only have one way to increase your running time, and that's to actually somehow go faster. But after a while, you run into the speed barrier. It's discussed in the science of sports training. This happens to many, many athletes, and they never run any faster the rest of their career. Uh, second way, safety squat bar. I know this is one of my favorites. Um, we'll take a safety squat bar and have them go to the same distances. It could be a 400, 800, 1200, or 1600 meter. Um, they will go with 125 pounds. That would be quarters on the bar. 165, that's a set of 45 pound plates. Or um, one or one uh, 215, that's a, a 45 and a set of quarters. Again, each time keep track of the time that they covered the distance. If they're doing this at a faster time, and when they remove the barbell off their back or the sled around their waist, they will definitely run faster. Um, this does a lot at the same time. It not only builds strength endurance, but um, aerobic capacities. As you well know, Tom, it, uh, the safety squat bar is grueling on your uh, chest, just knocking the air out of you. So when you master this, running is a breeze. And uh, are they power walking with the safety squat bar or are they uh, trying to jog or run um actually some athletes on a shorter distance i have sprint but it's a little dangerous so uh, basically we, we just power walk but the key is to pick up that get a fast start try to maintain it and always break your record every time you go any distance with any weight you must log in your times this is a whole theory of our training this is a conjugate system for track and field if I give you many different methods to break time barriers, how could you not go on a track and do it by just wearing a pair of gym trunks and track shoes? 
Uh, would you uh, would you bring in a wheelbarrow at all in that? Uh, thank you for bringing that up. I was. And, you know, wheelbarrow is very important. Although it's tough on the grip, a lot of people's grip will wear out. But one thing it does, you know, you need great balance to run a race. That has somewhat to do with our motion. Uh, because you to go uh, a distance, you want to go straight. You don't want to go left to right where you're trying to go straight because it's going to be a longer distance to cover. So wheelbarrow helps balance people and uh, build their overall strength. Just like the deadlift, you have to grip the bar using many, many muscles to uh, do this. Now, there was a study uh, by uh, Lenin uh, Pavlinskin, in, in, and uh, in, it was in the Underground Secrets of Faster Running by Barry Ross. And they concluded that if you do strength training properly, which I like to think we do because we have the strongest gym in the world, um, that you could uh, minimize ground contact by one hundredth of a second. Now, if you look at a 5K race, it requires 2,500 steps. That would be 25 seconds off a 5K race. Uh, that, that would be tremendous. Uh, people get a race for doing that. And this is basically a theory that we use as well as how we make people run faster for longer distances. So you're saying that um, if you have an athlete, if they're used to running 20, just say 23 miles or ultra, like uh, Ironman, they're running for 10 hours straight, that you won't have them train for 10 hours straight, that there's no need? There's no need. No, I would do interval training. Like, uh, you know, I had a young lady here. She ran 5K races, and um, and I had her go around. Um, she went uh, 400 meters for five trips continuously with a 45-pound plate on the sled in 18 minutes. And then we constantly would try to break, lower those records. I had a girl run 800 meters. She ran 214 in nine weeks by doing this, she ran, I believe, a 205. It's not world-class, but it's significantly faster after not being able to run faster for years. Uh, you had an ultra-marathoner come in here before, uh, he, and you put him on the, the belt squad. How, how did that fare out for him? Um, it was very, very tough for him. Uh, this fellow only ran five miles. By our train ran five miles a week to run 100-mile races. And uh, he did most of it uh, with sled dragging, walking in the, in the belt squad, which is very, very grueling. Uh, we found people that are think themselves are, are in significant um, in shape, uh, strength-wise, aerobic and anaerobic, can barely do this for a minute or two. So when you master that, uh, and all it's all taking the tra it takes traction off the spine. So there's no jamming of the spine while you do this, and you just walk in place. You can also um, have foam in there, much like running in sand. Another way to increase distance running, uh, it makes muscles stronger. Okay. That uh, pretty much covers most of the things we do, Tom. We always got a few secrets, but I like to keep them because that's why it's called West Side Secrets. All right. I'd like to thank uh, Flavio, John, Louis. This is the West Side Barbell Podcast, and we'll be back to you next week. Remember, folks, one thing. Don't be a tough guy. Become a samurai. Learn your art. Thank you. This is West Side Barbell with strength and conditioning legend, Louis Simmons. Westsidebarbell.com, the strongest website in the world.